Section 7 of The Spirit of American Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Patty Cunningham. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy. Section 7 Longfellow. On the death of Longfellow, Whitman wrote a tribute to the other good gray poet, which is so just and beautiful that it should be known to all who are interested in either Longfellow or Whitman. Longfellow, in his voluminous works, seems to me not only to be eminent in the style and forms of poetical expression that mark the present age, an idiosyncrasy, almost a sickness of verbal melody, but to bring what is always dearest as poetry to the general human heart and taste, and probably must be so in the nature of things. He is certainly the sort of bard and counteractant most needed for our materialistic, self-assertive, and money-worshipping Anglo-Saxon races, and especially for the present age in America, an age tyrannically regulated with reference to the manufacturer, the merchant, the financier, the politician, and the day-workman, for whom and among whom he comes as the poet of melody, courtesy, deference, poet of the mellow twilight of the past in Italy, Germany, Spain, and in northern Europe, poet of all sympathetic gentleness, and universal poet of women and young people. I should have to think long if I were asked to name the man who has done more and in more valuable directions for America. I doubt if there ever was such a fine intuitive judge and selector of poems. His translations of many German and Scandinavian pieces are said to be better than the vernaculars. He does not urge or lash. His influence is like good drink or air. He is not tepid either but always vital with flavor, motion, grace. He strikes a splendid average, and does not sing exceptional passions or humanity's jagged escapades. He is not revolutionary, brings nothing offensive or new, does not deal hard blows. On the contrary, his songs soothe and heal, or if they excite, it is a healthy and agreeable excitement. His very anger is gentle, is at second hand, as in the quadroom girl, and the witnesses. There is no undue element of pensiveness in Longfellow's strains. Even in the early translation, the Manrique, the movement is as of strong and steady wind or tide, holding up and buoying. Death is not avoided through his many themes, but there is something almost winning in his original verses and renderings on that dread subject as closing the happiest land dispute and then the landlord's daughter up to heaven raised her hand and said ye may no more contend there lies the happiest land to the ungracious complaint charge of his want of racy nativity and special originality i shall only say that america and the world may well be reverently thankful can never be thankful enough for any such singing-bird vouchsafed out of the centuries, without asking that the notes be different from those of other songsters, adding what I have heard Longfellow himself say, that ere the new world can be worthily original, 
and announce herself and her own heroes, she must be well saturated with the originality of others, and respectfully consider the heroes that lived before Agamemnon. Longfellow is the household poet of America. The laureateship was conferred on him by popular response, immediate, spontaneous, and continuous. When that is said, whatever may be added is less significant. It is a noble fate to be for many years the poet most cherished by a million hearths. The multitudinous electorate may not crown the highest poetry, but whatever it does choose and long adhere to is indubitably important in human history. Longfellow was the first American man of letters to establish for a busy and unlearned people a visible relation between academic culture and actual literary accomplishment. During eighteen of his most productive years, when he was well known to his countrymen as the poet of their simplest sentiments, he was a teacher of modern languages and literature at Harvard College. The poet who delighted the common heart with sweet song and pleasant ballad was Professor Longfellow. As a rule, professors write books which are useful only to other professors and to students obedient to academic prescription. From Professor Longfellow's study, a voice reached the popular ear. This man, official tutor in an institution monastically remote from the life of the toiling many, could say in wholly intelligible verse how a common man feels who has lost a child. He knew how to touch the despair of drudgery and raise it to confidence and a sense of personal dignity. He honored in a plain, unpatronizing way the village blacksmith, and in every American village the blacksmith is a useful citizen. He had a heart for ships and shipbuilders, and he gave new meaning to the Fourth of July orator's figure of the ship of state by symbolizing it in a real ship of hewn timbers. Long poems are hard to read, and solid pages of verse repel the unaccustomed reader. But Longfellow told the stories of Evangeline, Miles Standish, and Hiawatha in verse almost as easy to read as prose. The poet professor, who was the emissary of academic culture to the untutored, was also the ambassador of creative literature to a museum of, of intellectual antiquities in which Greek roots were esteemed above the flowers of living song. This poet, with fine manners, dignity, and delicate taste, lover of music, responsive to the contemporary songs of the nations, bore a torch of living culture among rusty grammarians and the hebraical sons of a decent but still stupid Puritanism. His successor, Lowell, and his friend, Norton, carried the torch on, and then it went out. There came the time when the teaching of modern literature in American universities, at Harvard certainly, was divided between philogelists on the one hand, men with no literary sense who reduced Shakespeare and Milton to archaeological specimens, and, on the other hand, amiable dilettanti, who illustrate the truth of Tanner's epigram, he who can does, he who cannot teaches. Longfellow and Lowell were beneficent blunderers into that realm of degreed and gowned authority where the counting of final E's in Chaucer is supposed to be the study of poetry, 
and the writing of a dull introduction to a superfluously new edition of hamlet entitles a commonplace doctor of philosophy to a professorship longfellow brought humane civilization to an american university and sent academic culture to the people in his great classes beyond the college gates to both he was the bearer of the light of contemporaneous europe he not only told his pupils about dante's tomb but read them snatches of folk-song and popular legend he translated modern poetry for his classes and through his books gave america a living sense of the beauty of the old world a younger harvard professor thinks that the foundation of longfellow's fame rests almost wholly on his service in discovering to an inexperienced nation the splendors of european civilization it was a genuine service but it was not all nor was it the most important his fame rests on his ability to phrase memorably ideas native to all simple minds everywhere it is to be noted that his most cherished poems from a psalm of life to the long narratives evangeline and the courtship of miles standish are on american subjects or on experiences common to humanity in tales of a wayside inn in which are twenty-two stories the best known is paul revere nevertheless it is true that at the right moment longfellow made america acquainted with some of the gayer beauties and the more innocent music of the old nations if one is willing to ignore traditional evaluations to disregard popular judgment and services that are an undeniable matter of national history opens longfellow for the book in itself one finds him a third-rate poet third-rate is not meant quite in its contemptuous sense the first-rate poets are milton shakespeare and shelley whose poetry is sustained through large schemes less than that supreme poetry is the perfection of short poems and short passages in long poems the perfection of wordsworth keats tennyson whitman browning below that perfection longfellow almost always falls his best work is not unlike gray's in its calm transparency its pleasant meditation on religious and sentimental commonplace his longer narratives are readable indeed they find many readers year after year and that alone is enough to distinguish him in a period whose poetic achievement is little more than an anthology of lyrics and fragments but in the longer poems of the age the prelude of wordsworth and browning's the ring and the book are superb lines fragments of gold there are few great lines in longfellow in christus the miraculous does not happen even for a moment except in the lines which are sentences from the english bible turned almost word for word into metre his verse is evenly and permanently of secondary quality the difference between the great and the good longfellow well knew for he was an admirable judge in his journal he records the opinion that aristo's orlando furioso is verse rather than poetry after all to remind ourselves how the first-rate excels what is less than first-rate a few examples will serve longfellow says in the poet's tale and rivulets rejoicing rush and leap 
and wave their fluttering signals from the steep. Wordsworth's line is, The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. Somewhere in the ear is a mentor which advises that Longfellow's lines are verse, and Wordsworth's is poetry. The end of the psalm of life is, Still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. Multitudes have been consoled by those lines. On the field of Sebastopol, a dying British soldier repeated them. Yet they are not comparable with the lines so near like them, so far above them. They also serve who only stand and wait. In a sonnet on Mrs. Kemble's readings from Shakespeare, Longfellow sings, O happy reader, having for thy text the magic books whose sibylline leaves have caught the rarest essence of all human thought. The lines are good, but they fail besides Wordsworth's, poor earthly casket of immortal verse. It is not simply that Longfellow's ideas are commonplace. Both Wordsworth and Tennyson are commonplace and lacking in passion, but now and again some verbal wizardry works a celestial redemption of their intellectual banality. The finest things in Longfellow are not those best known. The dear public, to whom when a critic with a humane sense of the uses of literature must at times humbly bow, has honored its poet splendidly, and missed his loftiest moments. A psalm of life would not disgrace a poet's juvenile volume if it were allowed to sleep there. For some reason it does not sleep, but stirs the sentiments of the very people who may be assumed to know the psalms of David, and knowing them, can yet take seriously a psalm of life, rock of ages, and other bad hymns. Genuine religious feeling makes the heart hospitable to very poor religious poetry. One would like to erase a psalm of life from every page whereon it is printed, and from every heart wherein it is remembered, and put in its place Longfellow's glorious sonnet to Milton, a sonnet which is peer to the great sonnets of Milton himself and of Wordsworth. I pace the sounding sea-beach, and behold, how the voluminous billows roll and run, upheaving and subsiding, while the sun shines through their sheeted emerald far unrolled, and the ninth wave, slow gathering fold by fold all its loose-flowing garments into one, plunges upon the shore, and floods the dull, pale reach of sands, and changes them to gold. So in majestic cadence rise and fall the mighty undulations of thy song. O sightless bard, England's Marianides, and ever and anon, high over all, uplifted, a ninth wave, superb and strong, floods all the soul with its melodious seas. The six sonnets that accompany Longfellow's translation of Dante are all perfect, the first especially, remarkable for the essential unity of its fine thought, the central metaphor, the restrainedly sonorous phrasing, is so flawless in mould and noble in content that it stands undiminished at the entrance to Dante. Oft have I seen at some cathedral door a labourer, pausing in the dust and heat, 
lay down his burden, and with reverent feet enter and cross himself, and on the floor kneel to repeat his paternoster o'er. Far off the noises of the world retreat. The loud vociferations of the street become an undistinguishable roar. So, as I enter here from day to day and leave my burden at this minster gate, kneeling in prayer and not ashamed to pray, the tumult of the time disconsolate to inarticulate murmurs dies away, while the eternal ages watch and wait. That many people would not be interested in poems to poets is a conceivable reason why these masterpieces of Longfellow are less generally admired than some of his verses feeble in sentiment and unelevated by verbal inspiration. There is, however, one sonnet of his, unsurpassedly lovely and poignant, with a sorrow universally understood, which should have first place in the mind of every sort of reader who would care for Longfellow or any poetry. This is the Cross of Snow. In the long sleepless watches of the night, a gentle face, the face of one long dead, looks at me from the wall, where round its head the night lamp casts a halo of pale light. Here in this room she died, a soul more white, never through martyrdom of fire was led to its repose, nor can in books be read the legend of a life more benedite. There is a mountain in the distant west that, sundifying in its deep ravines, displays a cross of snow upon its side. Such is the cross I wear upon my breast these eighteen years, through all the changing scenes and seasons, changeless since the day she died. It is characteristic of Longfellow that this poem on the dreadful death of his wife should not have been published while he lived. He did not utter his more intimate passions, and this sonnet indicates that he would not rather than that he could not. His restraint is humanly admirable, but his poetry suffers because it is not charged with the heat of his soul. He is usually objective, bright, and clear as prose. He seldom excites subtle sorrows or strange moods, never lights fiery passions, nor disturbs the inner sources of tears for all things that are. One exceptional poem, which makes its effect in a Coleridgean way, without the reader's knowing just what there is in the thought or the melody that moves him, is in the churchyard at Cambridge, especially the first stanza. In the village churchyard she lies, dust is in her beautiful eyes, no more she breathes, nor feels, nor stirs. At her feet and at her head lies a slave to attend the dead but their dust is white as hers. Another poem which would make a fortune of a book of moods by some young modern, who perhaps might be contemptuous of old Longfellow, is this. The tide rises, the tide falls, the twilight darkens, the curlew calls. Along the sea sands, damp and brown, the traveller hastens toward the town, and the tide rises, the tide falls. Darkness settles on roofs and walls, but the sea, the sea in darkness calls. The little waves with their soft white hands efface the footprints in the sands, 
and the tide rises, the tide falls. The morning breaks, the steeds in their stalls, stamp and neigh as the hostler calls. The day returns, but nevermore returns the traveller to the shore, and the tide rises, the tide falls. Of Longfellow's technical gifts there is no doubt, either because he had not a very deep nature, or because his early success showed him what his audience needed, he applied his fine skill to thoughts and feelings not usually striking nor powerful, and he became a very highly refined poet of the many. For the multitude who do not read the best poetry, there is left little except the work of versifiers of limited skill, of inferior literary culture, the Hermansees, Havergals, Haynes, Baileys, and hymn writers. Longfellow devoted an accomplished artistry to a humble grade of poetry, as though a competent architect should design workmen's cottages, or a true musician should prepare an evangelical hymnal. He appeals everywhere to minds which English writers call middle class, and French writers call bourgeois. It is hard to find a word that has the right connotation in America. Common people does not define them, and Democrat is too valuable an excellent word for them. Perhaps intellectually immature is just, but the phrase sounds snobbish and patronizing. The boys of Harrow, or was it Eaton, voted him the finest of poets. The most Catholic of translators, he was translated in turn into twenty languages. He is admired by people who have the gravest troubles and the fewest troublesome ideas, who are not interested in the intensest expression of the tragedies, stresses and ecstasies of life, but who take elementary ideas deeply to heart and seek plain elementary answers to daily perplexities, who like a touch of strangeness in their poetry, but do not understand it if the language is too strange. In his journal, Longfellow says of a poem he is meditating, I must put live beating heart into it. His poetry seems passionless without live beating heart as compared with the great voices of song, but three generations of simple hearts have found Longfellow a vital force in their lives. Biographical Note Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was born in Portland, Maine, February 27, 1807. He died in Cambridge, Massachusetts, March 24, 1882. He was educated at Portland Academy and Bowdoin College. On his graduation from Bowdoin in 1825, he was appointed teacher of modern languages, and to prepare himself he spent four years in Europe. In 1834, he was appointed to succeed George Ticknor as Smith Professor of Modern Languages in Harvard University. He spent another year in Europe, and in 1837 settled in Cambridge for the rest of his life. He held the chair at Harvard from 1836 to 1854, when he resigned. He went abroad in 1842, and again in 1868. He married Mary Story Potter in 1831. She died in 1835. In 1843, he married Frances Elizabeth Appleton. In 1861, she died of injuries received by fire. His principal works are 
Copéus de Manrique, translation, 1833, Outremer, prose, 1833-34, Hyperion, prose, 1839, Voices of the Night, 1839, Ballads and Other Poems, 1841, Poems on Slavery, 1842, The Spanish Student, 1843, Poems, 1845, The Poet and Poetry of Europe, Compilation, 1845, The Belfry of Bruges and Other Poems, 1846, Evangeline, 1847, Kavanaugh, Prose, 1849, The Seaside and the Fireside, 1850, The Golden Legend, 1851, Hiawatha, 1855, The Courtship of Miles Standish, 1858, Tales of a Wayside Inn, 1863, Flower de Luce, 1866, Dante's Divina Commedia, Translation, 1867, The New England Tragedies, 1868, the Divine Tragedy, 1871, published the following year with the New England Tragedies as Christus, a Mystery, Three Books of Song, 1872, Aftermath, 1873, The Mask of Pandora, 1875, Caramos, 1878, Ultima Tool, 1880, in the Harbor, 1882, Michelangelo, 1883. Longfellow's journals are found in The Life by Samuel Longfellow in three volumes. The biography by Thomas Wentworth Higginson in American Men of Letters is pleasant. In W. E. Henley's Views and Reviews is a fine appreciation. End of section 7. Recording by Patty Cunningham.